I'd like to speak today about a guy called Lot. Now the Bible scholars amongst you will remember that Lot was the nephew of Abraham. So that's what we're going to be having a chat about today. And like I say, I'm going to be using the screen quite a bit, so hopefully you guys at home can see the screen really well. But anyway, I've tried to make the words pretty big. I'm just waiting for the things to come up, and then I'll be off. There we go. Now the observant ones amongst you will notice the guy on the left-hand side is not actually Lot. Um, he's a Victorian gentleman. You can see he's holding a cricket bat. Does anybody know the name of that guy? Okay, he played in the first Ashes. Okay, so uh, he was an English batsman, and uh, he went back home, and not, short, not long after that, he became a missionary in China. And uh, he started off the mission that my father ended up with, a mission called WEC International. And uh, if I put up the quote, you'll realize who he is, because Kerry quoted him last week. He said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. So this gentleman is a guy called C.T. Studd. And actually that quote that was used last week and actually the message that was preached last week by Peter were very, very um, great lead-ins to what we're going to be speaking about today. And in fact, Greg and I have been talking and he might speak about another character from these stories fairly soon. So anyway, um, this is a real phrase that is just great for the story of Lot. So let's talk about Lot and where he came from. So on this next slide, what you'll see is... Um, the family tree. You can see that it all goes back to Noah. So on coming out of the ark, Noah, his three sons, his wife, and the three sons' wives, the eight people all together, started off re-establishing the human race. Okay, and you can see there his main sons, uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. You can see their, their children there. And you can see that from Shem, you go down to a guy called Terah. Now what this family tree doesn't really show is just how many people there were between Shem and Terah. You see, Abraham was the great, 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 great grandson of Noah. Ten generations. Okay, and what was the population of the world then? Well, as a mathematician, I can sit there and work out that if everybody was having two children, the population of the world would be in, in Abraham's time about a thousand. But in those days, they had lots and lots of children. So probably more like they had six to eight children in which case the population would have been 30 to 40 million across the earth. And they'd really grown out and spread. And that was probably more the case. So the family tree is actually quite complicated. Because as you look at it there, you can see that um, Abraham, one of the heroes of this story, he married actually Sarah, who was his half-sister. And you can see that Haran had a daughter called Milcah, who married Nahor, her uncle. And as you see, as you go down there, you can see Rebecca, who was the granddaughter of Nahor, married Abraham's son, Isaac. And then a bit further on, you can see that Jacob married Rachel and Leah, who are actually second cousins. So basically, there seems to be a lot of people marrying each other. And just to point out at this stage here, that these days, if we married that closely within families, we'd have big problems because of the genetics. And basically the issue is that over time, radiation and things changes the DNA in my body and makes harmful mutations. And my children will have some of those mutations. Fortunately, most of those mutations are what they call recessive. So what happens is my children, they marry somebody else, the bad genes are basically obscured by the good genes. But if you end up marrying somebody who's very closely related to you, then the bad genes can come together and cause some terrible genetic defects. 
the time we're talking here, those defects have not had a chance to grow in the human population. So at that stage, it didn't cause the problems that it does now. But just to give you an idea then of the complexities of the family tree. So the first person we're going to be speaking about is this guy called Terra. Now Terra and the family all lived in Ur, which at that stage was sort of like your London or your, your, your New York of the ancient world. It was a huge city. You can see there on the left-hand side of this picture, you can see basically what it looks like now. Do you see from 4,000 years ago, we've still got those amazing ruins that are there. You can see the fired bricks and everything else. But then on the right-hand side, you can see what an artist's impression of what that city would have looked like. Now, they say the city had a population of tens of thousands, perhaps 20 to 30,000, perhaps more. Nobody really knows for sure. But I'd like you to think about, because we're going to be talking a lot about cities today. If you think about Grafton, it's about the size of Grafton in terms of population. But the people who lived in, in Ur wouldn't have been people who were farmers so much. They'd have been perhaps people who owned the farms, maybe they had other people working for them. But you can imagine that as quite a cosmopolitan city, there are people who worked in metal, you had people who worked in all of these other things. And the time we're talking about is the beginning of the Bronze Age. So they were just beginning to use metal to make new things. But that was the center of civilization. And you can imagine that Terra's family would have loved living there. They were in the center of the civilization, they had all the latest things, all the latest goods, which to us might have seemed quite basic, but to them would have seemed amazing. And then out of the blue, Terra, according to the Bible, decides to move his family to Canaan. What a crazy idea. He had gone from somewhere, was a cosmopolitan city, uh, center of the universe, effectively. He obviously was established there. We don't know what job he had. But he suddenly announces that he's going to move his family to Canaan. Look at this picture, then, of Canaan. This is the life he was taking his family to. Do you see over there? A herder's life. To live in a tent. All the lovely smells and sounds of the animals around them. Okay? You can imagine. And I can imagine that Terra's family really weren't too keen on the idea, to be fair. The Bible doesn't tell us why Terra suddenly decided to do this. But I speculate that actually God had told him to move to Canaan. And Terra started off on the way. The problem is he only got about halfway. And they got to a place called Haran. And here's a picture of Haran. Look at the architecture and how different it is in Haran. These are ancient houses from there. You can see how tall they were. Look a bit like beehives, don't they? Do you see at the top there's a little bit of a chimney? So that have had fires inside the house. I think you'll find it's a lot colder in Haran than it was in Ur. So people had to have warmth. But you know what? They stopped in Haran. So if Terah had been told by God to go to Canaan, he only got halfway. And all of a sudden he decided to stop and the family settled down in Haran. Now Haran wouldn't have been like Ur, but maybe it was a compromise, you know? Perhaps his family, who were very keen to go back to Ur, settled for the fact they weren't going to go any further than Haran. And perhaps they settled down then into a cosmopolitan life and the way things could be. But then came Abraham. We read that when Terah died, Abraham heard from the Lord. And God said to Abraham, go to Canaan. So perhaps, and I'm speculating here, perhaps the word of the Lord originally went to Terah, who didn't follow through. But then the word of the Lord went to the next generation, to Abraham. And Abraham did what God told him to do. So this next diagram shows how Abraham moved. He went from Ur of the Chaldees. 
He went up to Haran, which is right at the very top of that map up there. And that's where they stopped. So Abraham was with his father, Terah. And then the word of the Lord came to Abraham, and he did what God said. And he took his family. It was his wife. He didn't have any sons or daughters at this stage, just his wife. And along went with him, Lot, whose father had died. So Lot, Abraham's nephew, went with him. They followed the red arrows, although actually it's the blue arrows too. They followed the red arrows, and they went off to Canaan. Now, all of this is a bit of a background to the story you're going to be hearing today. And when they arrived in Canaan, they became very prosperous. They had flocks and herds, and it seems they were very, very skilled at running the flocks and herds. They became great farmers. And of course, in those days, cattle, sheep, goats, mainly sheep, goats, camels, would have been very, very valuable. And they seemed to be very, very good, so good, that the flocks and herds they had became bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, they were nomads, and that isn't much fun. Because okay, what happened was this. Every time when the grass became eaten out by all your sheep and goats and, and camels, what you'd do is you'd have to move on. Or perhaps your wells dried up. As you can imagine now, they didn't have great um, pipes of water being brought to troughs in the fields. What they had, they would have sunk a well. And what would happen in the well is over time, water would seep into the well. And then you could come and get water out of the well. But if you used a lot of water from the well, the well would dry up. In which case you move away, and over a few, um, a few months and things, the well will begin to fill up again. And then you bring your sheep and your cattle back to that area again. And basically you move around to find the pasture, to find the water. If you know about cattle, they do like a lot of water, don't they? And so you can imagine what that life was like. But the problem was, they were so good as farmers, so good at looking after these animals, that Lot and Abraham, who were both running almost like their own separate businesses, but together, they had so many that the lands couldn't support them both. And their herdsmen were quarreling amongst each other, fighting over who would get first access to the water, who would get access to the best um, fields. And so the Bible tells us that they had a big argument. And so actually, Lot and Abraham, as the bosses of their respective family businesses, got together and they said, well, what are we going to do about this? We read in the Bible, and I can just picture this, Abraham taking Lot up to the top of a mountain and saying, look, over to that side, like a dividing range. He said, over to that side, one of us can go. And over to that side, the other of us can go. But then he did a very kind thing, because he was the boss. But he turned around to Lot, and he said, which way would you like to go? And Lot looked out. And on the one side, you had the Jordan Valley going down towards the Dead Sea, which at that stage was a very fertile area. He looked down, he could see the green grass there. And he could see, the other thing he could see was the cities on the plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zorah, and I think there were one or two others too. And he looked at that and he thought, you can imagine, where would the missus like me to go? What's the most sensible thing for me to do? And he chose the green side. And on the other side, it wasn't so well watered. On the other side, it would be far more harsh. But Abraham took his flocks and his herds and his wife and his tents and they went off to the sparser area. The Bible tells us in Genesis 13 verse 12 that Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. I don't know how long ago you last read Genesis, but there's a lot of wonderful stories, wonderful things in there. So perhaps I'm only going to skirt over quite a bit of this today. But guys, if you get a chance, go and have a good look at Genesis and see all these things. 
Now the Bible tells us that Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. That's quite important for what I'm about to say. And Sodom probably had a population of about 600. Okay, so just think about Woolai. Okay, that's got a population of about 500. But just give an idea of the number of people involved. And probably when they say the population of Sodom was 600, lots of people might have had houses there, but they'd have had the farms and things surrounding Sodom. But now let's look at what's happened by Genesis 14. We don't know how many years there were between Genesis 13 and Genesis 14. But by Genesis 14, Lot is now living in Sodom. And I've got to ask you a question we're going to be asking again later on. Just a, few, just a chapter before in the Bible, Lot had huge herds. And he had a large number of people working for him. By the time it comes to Genesis 14, Lot is living in Sodom. The herds have clearly gone. The workers are no longer working for him, for something I'm going to say later on. I reckon he's sold up and decided to live in the city. Because I reckon that's where his family came from. That's what they wanted to do. So, the key thing I'm going to be talking about here is what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But before we get to that, there's one or two other bits that are leading up to what happens in the story. So in Genesis 14, Lot is living in Sodom. But I'd like you to picture what things were like then. If you can imagine Woolai, okay, you'd have probably had a wall of some sort around Sodom to protect it from any invasions. But as a city-state, you'd have had effectively, I suppose, you'd have had, like me, councillors. But then there'd have been one boss. And that boss would have been sort of like the king of that city-state. What the king said went. And Gomorrah had its own king. And Zohar had its own king, we read in the Bible. But what had happened was another king from elsewhere had basically taken sort of like a, a, a leadership role over all of them, probably through battle. And they were supposed to pay this other king um, tribute every year. It's a vassal king to the original king. And if you can imagine, you'd have to raise taxes among the people to get money to give to this other king so that he doesn't attack you. And sooner or later, they got bored of this. And so what happened was five of the kings rebelled against the one king who was trying to trade tribute for men. And that one king brought together three other kings who held, held tribute for them. And four kings attacked Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the plain. And we read in the Bible that what happened was that the men of the city went out to fight. And what happened was they were very inept. They weren't, they weren't uh, professional soldiers. They probably just went out with a bit of their farming implements and things, and they had a battle against the other kings. But they were very inept. Even in the area they knew, the Bible says that quite a few of the men dropped into tar pits, and the rest decided to run to the mountains for safety. And what happened then was the king, he, the, the king who was invading came in, and he took away all the possessions of Sodom, and he started to carry them off including Lot. So let's ask you a question then. How come Lot was there? The men of the city had gone out to fight against the king. Lot wasn't one of them. And so what I conclude from this is that actually they didn't really trust Lot. Lot didn't belong. And I think throughout this story we can see that Lot did not belong in Sodom. And so they didn't really trust him. They went out to fight. Lot wasn't one of the ones they took with him. So when the king came in and conquered the city and took them away, he took away Lot and his family. Please note, they weren't talking about his herds or his herdsmen, because I think at that stage, Lot had sold up 
He was living off the fat of the land. But then what happened was that somebody came along and told Abraham what had happened. So we read in the Bible and it gives us the actual number of soldiers he took with him. But Abraham gathered together his herdsmen, his people. He got 318 of them. We read in the Bible he got ahead of the king who had conquered. And he ambushed the king and he won. And the king and his people ran away and now Abraham had control of the possessions of Sodom. There's a whole load of other bits in this story that I'd really encourage you to look through. But this is just a basis for where we're going to. And Abraham took them all back to Sodom. He was met by the king of Sodom, who said, give me the people back. You can keep the possessions. And Abraham said, no, he said, I do not want you ever to say that you made me rich. You get back everything. So Lot went back to live in Sodom. There's also a very interesting passage in Hebrews. Sorry, I say Hebrews. It's not Hebrews. It's 2 Peter 2, verses 7 to 8. And I'm sorry I've labeled it as Hebrews. And we read in the New Testament about... God and if he rescued Lot a righteous man who is distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard so that's what the New Testament says about Lot and it gets back to what I was saying before Lot wasn't in his natural place Lot was somewhere where he didn't really belong and we'll see that later on in this story the other thing I'd say to you is I wonder why Lot was there was Lot there almost like a missionary? Was he somebody that God had put in the place of Sodom to tell the people of Sodom about the Lord? Or was it that Sodom had, re had rejected what he'd been asked to do? He rejected the herding lifestyle that God had taken his family to and gone to live in Sodom. Personally, I think it's the latter. But it's an interesting question. The Bible doesn't really answer that one. But the key thing is that Lot did not belong there. And as I'm saying this, think about how this can apply to us here. In, in Grafton, in, in Australia. But the problem was that Sodom was a very evil place. We'll talk more about that in a second. But we read that God had heard about the badness of Sodom. God knew. And eventually God decides to take action. And you'll be aware of this story here. There are three men that suddenly appeared before Abraham. So Abraham was living on the other side of the divining range. He was some way away. He had his herds. He had his tents. And one of the things they were very, very good at in those days, and the Bedouins still are in Saudi Arabia, is showing hospitality to people who pass by. And Abraham saw these three men going by, and he invited them in to share his hospitality. And they talked. And if you can imagine, if you were Abraham now, suddenly they're talking about things that means that he realizes they're not normal men something very different about these and suddenly Abraham begins to realize that actually he's speaking with God and God tells him a little bit about the things that are going to go on there's more to this conversation but I think Greg might be speaking about this in a week or two so I'll leave that to him but it said they said to Abraham the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and Abraham suddenly realized that they were there to do some pretty serious things in Sodom and if you know the story, Abraham begins to negotiate with God. And he says to God, look God, if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom, would you still destroy Sodom? And the Lord said, if there's 50 righteous people, I will not destroy Sodom. And Abraham says, but Lord, if there's 40 righteous people, would you destroy Sodom? And God says to Abraham, if there were 40 righteous people, I wouldn't destroy Sodom. You can see that Abraham's thinking here. 
he's thinking of the fact that Lot has two daughters. Lot has his wife. Didn't know much probably about Lot's daughters, but he knew maybe they were engaged to be married. So he's thinking to himself. Eventually, Abraham negotiates with God, and he says, look, if there's ten righteous people in Sodom, will you save Sodom? And God said, if there's ten righteous people, I will not destroy Sodom. And Abraham knew he'd come to the end. And so he said, surely the judge of the earth will do right. And they went. Very, very interesting few words here. I'll leave you to reflect on these yourself. There were three men that came to share Abraham's hospitality. And the Bible says the two angels went down into Sodom. Who was that third person there? We know what we believe, don't we? Two angels, there were three people. I believe that's Jesus who was there, or the face of God that was there with Abraham. And so they went down into the city. Now we're getting into the key bits of what we want to talk about today. Now I'd like you to look at that city gate there in the diagram. Now this isn't of Sodom. Do you know what? They don't know where Sodom and Gomorrah were. They know they're around the Dead Sea. They've never discovered them. There are people looking for them to this day. They seem to be wiped off the face of the map. There's a good reason for that, probably. But if you can see that city there and the city entrance. This is an ancient city, and this is the sort of thing they used to do. They had the walls around the city. Probably Sodom's wouldn't have been quite as substantial as this one. But the key place that people went was the gate. Because anybody coming in, going out, went through the gate. The gate was where you did your trade. The gate was where all of the legal matters were handled. And we read that Lot was at the city gate. So perhaps Lot was a trader. Perhaps he was a merchant. We don't know what job that he did. But he was there at the city gate. And he saw these two angels coming in. Now you can be pretty certain they looked like just like normal men. They didn't have wings on them or anything else like that. They appeared as normal men. But as they came in, he saw them coming. And he realized that there could be some problems. And he spoke to them. He probably asked them what they're doing, introduced himself, and said hi. He said, what are your plans for the night? And they said, we're going to go and stay in the city square. Now, in most of these cities, you'd have a square, possibly around a well or a fountain of some sort or another. And they were going to stay around there. But Lot knew that they were in grave danger doing that. And so he persuaded them to come and stay with him. And we read that they came to stay with um, Abraham. Uh, Abraham, sorry, with Lot. But at night, the men of the city came. We read in the Bible that all the men of the city came, young and old. And they came because they wanted to attack the men. And Lot locked the door. He said, you can't come in. You'll need to read the rest of that story for yourself. But he, the people outside, you can see now how Lot did not fit in. Because they started saying, who made this man our judge? So they were not taking Lot as one of them. And the Bible tells us it didn't really turn out well for them because the angels made the people outside blind so they couldn't see. But you know what? The Bible says they were still trying to break in. They were so desperate that although they couldn't see, they were so desperate to do wrong that they were fighting, still trying to fight their way into the house. Folks, I don't have time to dwell on this, but please look at this for yourselves. It's quite an amazing story. So let's now think about what's happening. The angels now know what's going to be happening. And they turn around to Lot. And they say to Lot, Lot, you must get out. You must leave. God is about to destroy this city. And they say to him, do you have anybody else here? 
Now again, he seems to have lost his herdsmen and everything else. And all that Lot can come up with is his future sons-in-law. We read, and it's interesting to read the exact wording, and Lot went out and saw his brothers-in-law, um, his, his future sons-in-law. These sons-in-law were betrothed to his daughters to marry them. And it would suggest in the Bible that what were these men were actually part of the men trying to break in. So he went and spoke to them, and he said, look, come with me. God is about to destroy the city. But they laughed at him. They thought he was joking because they were so secure in the city where they were. But you can imagine this is probably 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And the angels are telling them, you've got to go, you've got to go. God is about to destroy the city. And we read that by the coming of dawn, they still hadn't gone. So they'd had six or seven hours, eight hours, whatever, to prepare themselves to leave. But they probably hadn't done so. You can imagine that they were thinking to themselves, oh, what's all this? I'm going to, just going to sleep it off tonight. It, it'll all be okay in the morning. The angels were saying to them, you've got to go, you've got to go. But they could not get that sense of urgency. And so by the end, we hear that what they did was they grabbed them by the arms and they dragged them out of the city. This is Lot, his wife and his two daughters, four of them. And they said, you have to run to the mountains. But listen again to what Lot said to the angel. He said, oh, the mountains are so far. He said, look, he said, there's that little town over there. So do you see he's still wanting to go cosmopolitan? He said, there's that little town over there. It's called Zoa, which meant little town. He said, can we go there? And God said to Abraham, yes, okay, off you go. And so they ran for Zoa. The Bible says that as they reached Zoa, suddenly sulfur, it actually used to be called brimstone, but fire and brimstone came down from heaven and destroyed Sodom. The last thing they said to them, was do not look back. Do not look at what is happening. But as they reached Zohar, this happened. And we read that Lot's wife turned around and looked back. And the Bible says that she was turned into a pillar of salt. Lot and his daughters clearly didn't. But they didn't stop in Zohar. After this had happened, they just ran and they ran to where God told them to go to originally. They ran to the mountains and they disappeared. Let's talk about Lot's wife. Was it just her actions? Was it just that she turned back to look at the fire and brimstone? I suspect it was more than that. I think it was her thoughts too. See, the problem was that when Sodom was destroyed, everything they had was destroyed as well. Now, we know obviously in this area of natural disasters, of people who've had their houses burnt by fire and lost everything, people who've had their houses flooded and lost everything. That was the situation that Lot and his family were in. They'd probably sold up their huts, flocks, and their herds. Maybe they had gold hidden within their house. But everything they owned was in Sodom. And so you can imagine that Lot's wife, after all that's happened, everything they had, she turned around and she looked back. And she was thinking, she was mourning for the life that she'd had, that she could tell now was gone. So the question is, after all of this, what did Lot really have left? What I'm going to come to in a minute is to think about how this applies to us today. You see, the thing is about Christians is that we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And that phrase comes from Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane before he died. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And really, this is a situation that Lot was in, wasn't he? 
He was in that city of Sodom, but they didn't trust him to go to war. The moment he said anything, they said, who made this man a judge amongst us? He just never, ever fitted in. And that's how it is for us as Christians, isn't it? Because we're not from this kingdom. We're not from this world. We're looking for the, for the heavenly kingdom. And as when we became Christians, we became part of God's family. We should also not be too comfortable with worldly possessions. I suppose we should really think to ourselves, what is it that we really value? What's the thing that's valuable to me? And I'm afraid sometimes worldly possessions actually are pretty valuable to me. And perhaps I need to think about that in a different way. You know, Jesus said to the disciples, he said, it's harder for a rich man to get to heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. See, I suppose if somebody doesn't have anything, then they don't value what they don't have. For people like us, most people in Australia, we have quite a lot. And so we value the things we have, and perhaps we need to think more about the heavenly kingdom. So remember that phrase from C.T. Studd. There's another one coming soon. Okay, what did it say? He said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. So as I say, we shouldn't be too comfortable with worldly possessions. The Bible says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, which is basically the things we've done for other people, the things we've done for God. And we should also not really expect to fit in because we're not from this world. We have a different set of standards, a different way of doing things. We have different expectations. People are very concerned about the environment, and I understand that. But for a person who's an atheist, this world's all they've got. We look forward to the heavenly kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth as Christians that Jesus promised us will come to us. We have a job to do. Our job is to tell people about Jesus. That is our responsibility here. But what I'd say to you is don't be too worried about what happens because our job is to tell people about Jesus. The Holy Spirit, it's his job to turn people to faith. We read that the Holy Spirit is the one that brings people to faith. Our job is to be witnesses. So let's talk then about no turning back. Because that's exactly what Lot's wife did, wasn't it? She turned and she looked back. Perhaps we hanker for a more comfortable life. Perhaps our life as Christians won't make us comfortable. Perhaps God's going to tell us to go somewhere we don't want to go. Perhaps we're in a big city. Perhaps we're being told to go to a place out west. Perhaps we're being told to go somewhere where we won't be as comfortable, perhaps somewhere overseas. Think about C.T. Studd. He went, came from a very privileged English family. He ended up as a missionary out in China. What about your family? I'm sorry, Julie, but God comes first. For me, God is first. My wife is second and my family is third. But God should come first in our lives. And that's what we should be doing as Christians. But I know that if I put my trust in God, God actually is more loving and more caring for my wife than I would ever be. God cares and loves my children more than I will ever love them. Isn't that difficult to think? But that's what the Bible says. I can trust my family to God. What about conforming or not transforming? Okay, the Bible says, do not conform to the standards of this world, but be transformed. So as Christians, we need to be transformed. Think about the standards that we have in society. Over time, 
the standards have changed, haven't they? It's um, think about all of the things that are considered socially unacceptable. Speaking about religion, for example, is socially unacceptable. But actually, you turn on the TV, you'll see the most appalling things being presented as entertainment. We must be careful that we don't align ourselves with that. That we don't align to this idea that we shouldn't tell people about Jesus, but it's okay to watch these awful things on TV. So that would be conforming. If I conformed, that would be changing myself to that. But I want to be transformed. We should be aiming to be transformed, to be more like Jesus every day. But once we're there, let's not backslide. Let's not turn back. Because the Bible says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance a race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. That's Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2. And this is what Lot had to do, wasn't it? He had to look at those mountains and aim towards the mountains, not look back at what was behind him. There's another great preacher from the past called A.W. Tozer. And a young man apparently asked him, what, what does it mean to be on the cross? And if you think about Jesus on the cross, could Jesus look behind him? No. Jesus could only look forwards. So as us as Christians, if we're metaphorically on that cross with Jesus, we look forward to what is coming. We can't look back at what was coming from before. So what should we do then? If we're not going to turn back, several things. First of all, read the Bible. Can I urge you to have a look at this bit of Revelation? Because there's so much more from this that I do not have time to cover. But have a look at, Revela um, have a look at uh, sorry, Genesis, my apologies, which is where this passage comes from. But look at the whole Bible. There are Bible reading plans that allow you to read through the Bible in the year. Somebody was telling us last week about the fact that they were doing that. Okay, so try and read through the Bible in a year. Because by looking at the Bible, we're reading God's words, and we're aligning ourselves with him. Pray. By spending time with God, we become more like God. So pray. Meet with other Christians. We've had a bit of a problem with COVID, haven't we? And that stopped us from meeting together as we'd like to. But I'm hoping that this time of COVID will be coming to an end. Okay, there's lots of cases surrounding Grafton at the moment, but it seems to be more mild than it was before. And let's hope that within a few months' time, be able to meet where everybody's back again together. Isn't it wonderful to see the number of people we have here today? And just be assured there's a whole load of people who are also online and other people who are going to read and going to listen to what we're saying today later on. The other thing we've got to be is a witness for Jesus Christ. I always love that phrase just there by the door. The thing is, once you see it too often, your, minds, your eyes don't see it. It says you're now entering your mission field. And what we should be as witnesses, by the way we live, by the care we show for other people, but not lose the opportunity to tell people about Jesus and what he's done for us. I'm going to leave you with a final statement from C.T. Studd. And he said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then nothing is too hard for me to do for him. And I pray that that will be our, our, our um, motto for the week to come. Now, as we finish today, folks, I'd really like to play something. We talked about turning back. Let's do this old song from Sunday School. Now, this song, I just read a little bit about it. It's actually based on a folk tune from India. And it comes from the words of a lovely Indian Christian as he was coming to his deathbed. And so that's where the words originally came from. Let's think about what he said. I have decided 
too far.